Hello, I'm Ray Reich, founder and CEO of RevOps Squared, and your host of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. We talk to a wide variety of B2B SaaS and cloud thought leaders, executives, investors, and people just like you to discuss the metrics and benchmarks they use to make metrics-informed decisions. Now on to today's show. Welcome to today's episode of the Metrics at Measure Up podcast. Today, I'm so pleased that we are joined by Brent Adamson, the author of The Challenger Cell, The Challenger Customer, a former distinguished vice president at Gartner, a longtime advisory services leader at CEB, corporate executive board, and currently the head of research and community ecosystems. Today, we'll be covering three main topics with Brent. First, has the SaaS industry broken the sales process? Second, why understanding buying stakeholder personas is so critical to success in 2023? And third, does the oversaturation of the number of SaaS solutions impact the value of value-based selling? Brent, please take a moment to give a brief overview of your journey to becoming a guest on the Metrics Measure Up podcast. Hey, Ryan. Hey, everybody. How are y'all doing today? My journey to be, <laughs> because it's all led up to this point is my journey in life has been the lead to this, this podcast. So it's, um, it's, it's great not the to be peak of your career journey, but it is <laughs> well, definitely where you're at today. It is the peak today. That's exactly right. Uh, so I spent the better part of, I guess, Ray, the last 20 years or so studying sales and marketing and buying some B2B commerce and just trying to understand as deeply as I am and the teams I've been with as we possibly can what does world-class selling and marketing look like in the face of B2B buying today and how that B2B buying is evolving? If, just as a quick footnote, I mentioned 20 years. I'm actually much older than that uh, because I actually have about a 35-year career in research and teaching and writing. So before I joined the world of CEB, a corporate executive board and sales research, I was a German professor where I, my specialty was applied linguistics. And I taught on the faculty of Michigan State. So which is, I know is a total non sequitur career-wise, but basically I've spent the, my entire adult life researching things, teaching about them, writing about them. Well, even though we could go down that professorial route <laughs> and talk about really intellectualized things. <laughs> we'll, we'll just names, leave that right there. Yeah, that's right. Just, just park that you know, move on. <laughs> this is the podcast, so we like to have that hook right up front. So yeah. we're going to do that, Brent. So here's a hot take I heard you share on a, the coffee podcast with Matt Hines the other day. Mm-hmm. And you highlighted that, SaaS has broken sales. And I'm like, whoa, that's a hot take. Can you share some of the insights and data points that brought you to say that? Yeah, sure. The It is a bit of a hot take. Is it, Sometimes it's good to be a little over the top in your language. Sometimes it's actually not good to be over the top in your language. Uh, on that particular show, it's, it's a little over the top. But there's a really interesting phenomenon, I think, in SaaS sales, in particular where I'm thinking of not the big players, but the you know the small to medium who are largely uh, VC or PE backed. Um, that goes along with you know so much of the last five to ten years. Ray, as you know, has all been about quote unquote blitz scaling, right? So it's a, how do we get very big, very very fast, and how do we get very big, very very fast when we're backed by just huge amounts of absurd, you know, absurd, absurd amounts of money, right? So the way that you do that is, of course, you hire a whole bunch of people. And you run a volume game, right? So you run a volume game of BDRs or SDRs or whatever you might call them, essentially sending out huge amounts of communication, whether it's in mail or email or cold calling. And by the way, nothing against the people actually doing the work. They're just 
essentially doing what they're told, right? But the strategy is, it's like, it's kind of a scorched earth strategy of let's just reach out to as many, many people as possible. And if we only convert a tiny fraction of them because we've just annoyed the heck out of everybody else, that's okay because we're working off a small denominator. So I can get big growth rates off of small returns because I'm working off a small denominator. And so I can make that growth rate look like it's going up very, very fast until at some point that play doesn't work anymore because your scorched earth strategies left nothing but devastation behind you. And and once you get to a certain level of of size, then it no longer works because you're now working off a bigger denominator. And by the way, this is all, I mean, in some ways it's autobiographical because this was this was our play at Corporate Executive Board or CB back in the early 2000s, right? We had, we called them marketing associates. Today we call them, you know, one would call them BDRs. But it was the same thing. We would sit in little rooms in the office and dial for dollars. And this is, we like to call it, and we'd tick off 10, but we'd get one. And that's okay because, because again, the, the volume was such that you could grow very, very quickly until you reach somewhere around, I don't know, 300, 400, 500 million in revenue. And all of a sudden that play doesn't work anymore. But I think the thing that's interesting here, Ray, is in the SaaS world, that's okay because that's all I'm trying to do is get to that 300, 400 because then there's an exit, right? And then at that some point, then I can exit to a new set of investors or maybe go public or, or sell more likely than not sell off to someone else. And then it's someone else's problem. So it's very easy for me to sit around and be critical of that motion just because I think it's just so deeply broken and it's just so damaging to the profession of sales. But as I often joke, you know, at the end of the day, I'm sitting here as a schlub talking on a podcast and the people who run that player on yachts in the Mediterranean. So tell me who's the huckleberry. I don't know. Exactly. Well, it's interesting. I am. I do a lot of metrics and benchmarking assessments, and I was with a $50 million company a few months ago, and they wanted to look at their pipeline efficiency and efficacy for 2023. So mm -hmm. we looked at all the pipeline generated, and sales development had generated about 40% of their pipeline, mm -hmm. but they only generated about 20% of their new customer ARR. So we started to dissect the quality of the pipeline, et cetera. And what was interesting, and this gets back to how we have armed these sales development, business development reps with the dangerous technology, that being sales engagement platforms, their pipeline coverage ratio was 9.2 for sales development generated pipeline from outbound activity. That means for every $9.2 of pipeline, they'd get $1 of revenue, where their overall pipeline coverage ratio was more than 3.5. So mm -hmm. my question to you about that is, how have you seen the use of sales technology and automation impact sales productivity? Has it been better because we can do a heck of a lot more and it's just a numbers game or is it really decreased sales productivity, Brent? So Ray, have you seen the new book by Howard Dover uh, called The Sales Innovation Paradox? I don't know if you've seen this yet. It's, it's been out for a couple months. Howard is on the faculty at the University of Texas at Dallas and he, he runs the sales program at UTD. He's a great guy. And he's put out a whole book about this. I was honored to write the forward for the book. So it's, it's a piece, it's a body of work I know pretty well. But the, the opening of the forward, just to be, I'll let Howard speak to the book itself. But the opening of the forward is this is a recall to the, the final scene of the movie, The Planet of the Apes, the classic from the 1970s. And with the, for those who haven't seen it, and if you haven't, you need to go watch it. If I had to sum up the final scene in one phrase, it'd be, this is why we can't have nice things, right? The Sales Innovation Paradox book is all about the very fact, Ray, that if you pour millions and millions, if not billions of dollars into new technology and sales tech stacks, or for that matter, MarTech stacks, but you're running the underlying plays that you're running are damaging, then all you do is amplify the badness rather than overcome the badness, right? So in other words, if, if sales or BDRs and SDRs, again, are just, you know, writing impersonal cold call emails to people who don't want to receive them are annoying. And now I give you tools to do that at high volume. You're just going to exacerbate the underlying problem rather than overcome it, which is not to say, therefore, just to be very careful, 
that sales technology is either good or bad. It's just going to make you do at hyper productivity what you were already doing. So the underlying thing you got to look at is what were you already doing? Yeah, I totally agree. And I want to make sure the audience has a chance to read that book because it sounds really good. So it's Howard Docker. And it's Dover, set- D-O, uh, sorry, D-O-V-E-R, Dover, Howard Dover. Yeah, Dover. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I am sometimes accused of being a little old school. Yeah. And my response is often, well, history is often the best predictor of the future. So mm-hmm. I reread one of your books that was just transformational in my own journey. And that was the Challenger Customer. Mm-hmm. And you highlighted there, the, I, I think the 5.4 people rule, but back when you wrote that book, the buying team size, right, was average of 5.4 people. And that reduces the purchase probability or likelihood from like 81%. If it's a single buyer, it's 31%. And now today, people are saying the buying team sizes are 7, 8, 11 people, depending on the latest research that you watch. So my question to you is, how does a sales professional heading to 2023 deal with having buying committee sizes of 11 people? Big question. It is a big question. You know, I, I think in many ways, the lessons of the challenge of customer are still just as germane today as they were then. Is the scope, the size of the problem potentially is bigger or scarier for a lot of us. But, you know, I think the challenge of customer was the first time that we had sort of publicly declared at, at the corporate executive order, CEB, declared is the wrong word, observed what was really going on on the buying side and been able to document it in ways that most of us hadn't really thought about before. You know, if you, Ray, you, you and I have been doing this for a long time. So you remember at a time in, in the sales profession where we were all trained to do the same thing, which is find the senior decision maker, right? So we all talk about climbing up higher and higher into getting into the C-suite, getting into the corner office. And if you can get some time, some face time with the person who's the decision maker, then you're inevitably going to win the deal. And so it was all about that journey of finding that one person. So about 2008, 2009, we began studying that dynamic. And, and one of the things we found about those senior decision makers on the buying side, when you got surveyed, then asked them, like, what do you really care about? What is the number one priority for you as a quote unquote senior decision maker making a purchase decision on behalf of your company? The data was actually pretty definitively clear, which is, you know what, the number one thing they care about is not your product, not your solution, not your presentation style or your ROI. It was whether or not that solution had widespread support across their team, because they didn't want to be the person to pull the trigger on a multi-million dollar purchase that the rest of the team would would not support. That's just a really bad situation to be in for everybody. And so that became pretty clear. That was our early indication that there's something afoot here, that, that B2B buying isn't really a matter of a decision. It's a matter of a consensus-based decision where there's multiple people which then led us on this journey to say, well, how many people are we talking about here? Who exactly is involved? And when we started running that number, we landed at this kind of crazy number of 5.4, which is an average, right? So on average, there are 5.4 stakeholders involved in a typical B2B purchase. Now, keep in mind, that's 2010, 2011. So we wrote the, shortly thereafter, we wrote the second book, The Challenger Customer. We spent a lot of time in that book, as you know, Ray, talking about the 5.4. Effectively, we branded the 5.4. We made it almost like this entity, right? It's like, you watch out for the 5.4. Here's how to handle the 5.4. Lo and behold, shortly thereafter, we, we re-ran that number and then went from 5.4 to 6.8. And then, then when 6.8 went to 7.2, and literally every single year after that, that number went up to the point where we actually stopped reporting a specific number, one, because it kept changing, and two, because it got so big, it almost became unbelievable. I mean, once you hit double digits, uh, my dear friend, Eric Braun, who was at the time our chief research officer, said, no one's going to believe that number. It's too high. And then I go out and talk to heads of sales and heads of marketing, and they say, oh, actually, our number is even bigger than that. So whether it's 5.4 or 6 or 10, there's just a ton of people involved in the purchase but I think the thing, Ray, that the the lesson here isn't the number itself. And that's why in some ways I stopped reporting the number and start talking about a range. 
is because the the thing that I think we all need to focus on isn't the number or the size of the buying group. It's actually the diversity. And what I mean by that is that you know normally I I'd like to think most of us think diversity is a good thing across so many different dimensions. I certainly do. I'll raise my hand and say diversity is a good thing across many different dimensions. But when you're trying to sell a complex solution, diversity can actually be a problem in this sense. When I say diversity in this context specifically, what I mean is each of those different stakeholders represents a different function, a different geography, a different level, a different role inside their organization. As a result, each of them has slightly different, if not completely different metrics or targets or priorities that they're trying to solve for with good intention on behalf of the company. And so now I'm trying to sell to this very diverse group with very diverse priorities and metrics and targets. And if I can't get them aligned around a common, not even around a common decision to buy my solution, but a common agreement on what they're even trying to do in the first place, it's very difficult to sell. So there's a, it was a very um, powerful story. I think I put it in the book, The Challenger Customer, but I'll never forget. I was in Palo Alto. I was presenting some of this work at the time to a group of head of sales. And there was a head of sales from a med device company. He said, you know, Brent, here's the problem we have is, you know, I go into the hospital thinking I'm selling this medical device to surgeons and care providers and maybe nurse practitioners. And then we get into the buying group committee late in the deal. And all of a sudden the CFO shows up and the, the marketing, the CMO, the chief marketing officer of the hospital, who knew even that had one shows up. And it turns out all this time, I thought it was my device competing with someone else's device. And it turns out what was really happening, it was my device competing against a new parking garage for the hospital because the head of marketing is worried about the patient experience of people arriving in urgent care and not finding a place to park and kind of panicking. So do we, do we spend money on this medical device that saves lives or do we build a parking garage? And, and again, if you can't get that buying group aligned around what is the underlying problem they're trying to solve and saving lives, patient experience, both important, right? And both very closely tied together. It's very difficult to get them to not just buy something, but to decide something. So I'll wrap it up with just a punchline. You know, so much of that customer challenge or customer work, I, I, I summed up with a very simple phrase, which is at the end of the day, whether you're marketing or sales, it doesn't matter. We spend so much time trying to think of how do we build a better connection of stakeholders to us through personalization, through understanding their priorities, through deep discovery. But I think in this world, it's not the, the goal has to be not so much doing a better job of connecting individual stakeholders to us, but doing a better job of connecting individual stakeholders to, to each other and understanding what are the differences? What are the points of disconnect? What are the points of agreement across that buying group? And understanding with a deep level of empathy where they're likely to connect and disconnect and helping them come to a coalesce around a common vision. It's a great point to summarize on because I'm now yeah. going to double click on, to me, what my favorite part of the Challenger customer book was. And that is, I was teaching my sales organizations all about buyer personas. Mm -hmm. right? How do you sell to a VP of marketing or a VP of sales or a CFO? And then we'd have messaging and value props, right? We talked about value-based selling. And then it's like, okay, we're going to have stages. Have you got your champion, your coach, your influence, your economic buyer? But you introduced the concept of buying stakeholders and these different personas and one you grouped into the mobilizer kind of group can you mm -hmm. share because i think it's so appropriate for 2023 a little bit about those buying stakeholders the top three that you need to identify and help socialize and gain consensus within an or a buying organization yeah absolutely it, you know, if I may, oh, this sounds so self-serving. I apologize. But this this work, I think, is still underappreciated in the marketplace. It's just so valuable. And when I see companies embrace this mobilizer idea, it's just, it's super powerful. If I may, it goes back, Ray, to, to, to a simple uh, but powerful understanding of what it is we're trying to do in B2B commerce. So I would argue 
if I may, <laughs> that we all sell the same thing. So whether you're capital equipment, business services, consulting, med device, uh, SaaS as a product, or you know, SaaS as a software as a service, whatever it might be, we all. Let me, and I'm going to stop. I'm going to throw this out. I'm going to tell you what I mean by this, right? And I want to get your first reaction, so we'll go forward from there. But I think we all sell the same thing. We all sell change. So one way or another, what we're all trying to do is get our customers to change their behavior, even existing customers. So whether it's stop buying from them and start buying from us, stop doing it on-prem and put it in the cloud, stop buying this old technology, buy this new technology, stop buying our old product, buy our new product, uh, stop buying this amount from us, start buying this bigger amount from us. But one way or another, I think if you really peel back the layers of any B2B sale or purchase, one way or another, other than just a straight up simple renewal, let's keep on doing the same thing. Other than that, particularly when you get into customer expansion, when you get a logo acquisition, what we're all trying to do is get our customers in some fashion, not to buy something, but to change something. Let, let me just pause on that and then we'll talk about the mobilizers. But do you, do you buy that? Yes. And I'd like to add, I do think you're trying to get your buyers to change something they're doing today or not doing today. Yeah. But it's being able to connect that to the aspirational or emotional goals that each one of those have of why they're going to facilitate that change to happen. Well, right. So you're, you've gone down the field or pitch an extra step, which is great, right? Because, because this has all sorts of downstream implications, right? If what we're really trying to do is not so much get our customers to buy something, but get our customers to change something, right? So first of all, that's where the challenger work, I think, is so important, is, is getting them excited about a new idea in the first place, giving them something to rally around as a change. But now we've got them all excited to do something different, and now we've got to get that buying group to coalesce around that idea and move forward, and that's actually really hard. So, okay, so your question is about the mobilizer. So one of the things we found, I just it's so fascinating in our research at CEB at the time was we were trying to understand this whole senior decision maker idea and who, you know, like if it's this is about challenging customers, not just that you challenge, but who you challenge, it matters. So who who is it that I should approach with these new insights to help customers understand their business differently? And so one of the things we did is we asked, it was a couple thousand sales professionals, B2B sellers, a, a series of questions. We gave them like, I don't know, it was like 19 or 20 different questions or, un, or attributes of a customer stakeholder and said on a scale of one to seven, how important is it that your stakeholder that you're trying to connect to have this attribute? It'd be things like seniority, budget ownership, decision-making authority, you know, a certain role, certain title. And so on a scale of one to seven, like, oh, that's one, that's not important at all. Seven, that's super important. So then, so we had about 20 of these attributes. And then we had about a couple thousand sales reps rank them in terms of importance so, you know, on a scale of one to seven, rate them on a scale of one to seven. And then, then we took all that data, right? And we divided it or we cut it by sales performance, star performers versus core performers of sales professionals. And all that, I know that's, sorry, I went down, it's like a, a bit of a hole of methodology, but, but it's super interesting what happens here because once we cut it by performance, what we found is star performing sales professionals really only cared about two things, two attributes in the stakeholders that they sought to build connections with. And the two attributes they cared about most, right, were none of the things that we trained them to care about. They didn't care about seniority. They didn't care about budget ownership. They didn't care about title. They didn't care about role. They didn't care about position on the org chart. They didn't care about decision-making authority. Any of the stuff that we trained them to care about didn't matter. The only two things that sales, the, the star performing sales reps cared about were ability to build consensus and ability to drive change or willingness to drive change in their organization. So it was, a, it was essentially a, it was a willingness and ability to drive change, build consensus and drive change. 
that's actually really interesting because no one had ever taught them to do that. They just did this instinctively. By the way, many of them didn't even realize they were doing it until we ran the numbers. That's why it's so fun to do research. Yeah. Excuse you can you can uncover things that people don't even know that they're doing or know that they're there. And so then, and by the way, this actually makes sense, right? If what we're selling is change, it makes sense that the best sales reps are looking for people who are really open and willing and able to drive change and build consensus around that. So then we took all that and we said, well, what if we were to be able to profile stakeholders and figure out who among the stakeholder buying committee it fits that kind of profile. And and now uh, this is, you'd have to bear with it because it's a short podcast. And I can't go into all the methodology. It's all in the book. But basically what we found is that there's a certain subsegment of customer stakeholders that we ultimately called mobilizers. And mobilizers are those who are, are able and willing to build consensus and drive change in their organization. So the whole book is about these mobilizers, these challenger uh, customers, cu- challengers on the customer side, who they are, how to find them, how to equip them with the kind of content that they need to, to go build that kind of uh, that insight. Two real quick thoughts on this is one of the best mobilizers, Rand, I'm sure you found this again and again in your own career, is what we would call a skeptic. So a skeptic is someone, right? So the skeptic is the one with their arms crossed sitting back in their chair and you show them a new idea about their business and they ask you a hundred questions that are kind of, well, they're skeptical, right? They tear that idea apart piece by piece by piece and it feels uncomfortable and you kind of hate it. And if you're a core performing rep, you look at that conversation, you come back to your own sales organization, they hated it. They asked a ton of questions. This is awful. I need different content. I need something better. Star performers know that that, that skeptic, the one that's going to take that idea and tear it apart piece by piece by piece and understand it is probably the single best person you can ever connect to in a customer organization. Because if you could, if, if you can win them over, it's not only that you know they're skeptics, all their colleagues know they're skeptics. Like one of those things like, well, Brent likes it. It must be good because Brent hates everything sort of thing, right? So if I can win over a skeptic or what we call a go-getter or what we call a teacher, those are the ones, one by process, one by a sort of visionary storytelling, and one because of just this detail orientation on skepticism. They're the ones that are particularly good at getting something done, not just for them, but for the rallying that buying group around a vision. The flip side is, the people that are fun to talk to, what we call the talkers and the guides and the friends, they will talk to you. They'll share information, but it turns. And so it feels really good. It feels like you're making progress because they shared information and they'll actually book the next. You said, because the one thing we're all trained to do is at the end of a sales interaction is book the next sales interaction. And they will book that with you every single time. And you know what you're going to do at the next meeting? Well, you're going to talk some more, right? So the talkers feel great, but don't get anything done because they're horrible at building consensus and driving change. So mobilizers versus talkers, there is a third group called the blockers. And and it's not that they don't want to talk to you, it's that they don't want change. So they don't talk to you, not because they hate you, but they don't talk to you because they don't want change. And what we're trying mm-hmm. to tell is change. So mobilizers, talkers, and blockers. And that's the story. That's great. And I just want to repeat those three mobilizers. And it's the skeptic, it's the go-getter, and it's the teacher. And read the challenger customer to really understand those in detail. And I still yeah. remember early in my career, I was an engineer and I moved over to sales because I was told that's where the money was, right? Yeah. And I still remember I got to a CEO in a meeting and it was just like this director level person. This was a Fortune 1000 company. And he's like, well, what about this? And what about that? Right? And I'm like, well, I'm not sure that really is appropriate, you know, or applies here. And the CEO looked at me, he goes, Ray, he goes, if you can get John to want to buy your product, we're most likely going to buy it. He told me right there that that skeptic was his kind of GPS system of whether it was going to work in his organization or not. But let me pivot to a totally different subject. And that is the importance of tapping into emotions. And you talked about in your book, 
value selling. We all do discovery calls to understand the business value so we can show the compelling ROI. And you said emotions might be even more important than the understanding, i.e. understanding the feelings of the buyer, not just the business rationale for the buyer. Can you dig a little bit more into that for me? Oh, yeah, there's a hundred different ways we can go with this. And I think all of it's underappreciated. The, if I'm, I'm just a real quickly, I'm going to do a quick plug. So at, at my new company, Ecosystems, we've started publishing a, a weekly video series called Brent's Breakdown. And it's just a little, I, I try to make them snackable chunks, a little three to five minute sort of quick insights that, that we send out on YouTube and LinkedIn. And there's more that I'll be unpacking there as this goes. So feel free to subscribe. But so we talked about mobilizers and we talked about the fact that someone has to be willing and able to to drive change, build consensus. And so much of the challenge are customers about how would I find these people? You know, we don't talk about Ray in that book, partly because we had it, but it was it was cutting. It landed on the cutting room floor. And I think it's one of the most underappreciated things we ever produced at CB that I'm really interested in, in diving back into is not just how do I find mobilizers, but how do I create them? How do I actually mm -hmm. make someone willing to go fight the fight? Because we had some really interesting data from stakeholders who say, I'm willing to buy your solution. And you think, well, great. Because you know, imagine that's how we're trained in sales. If I can look someone in the eye and someone says, I love it, I want to buy it. You think slam and dunk, I'm going to Cancun this year, right? And so you get really excited. But if you ask them a follow-on question, which is not, are you willing to buy it? But are you willing to go down the hall and fight for it? Are you willing to put your credibility on the line and go talk to the other six people, including maybe your boss or the CFO, to get them back to back it too? All of a sudden, that like willing to buy disappears. It's like, I'm willing to buy it, but but I can't buy it. And I'm not willing to do that. So, so never mind. So how do, we, how do we create that kind of desire, willingness to essentially... I don't want to make this too martial, but to go to battle for your solution or go to battle for a course of action that leads to your solution is probably a better way to put it. So here's the short version of this. It all comes down to something that we ultimately dubbed identity value. And this we published in the Harvard Business Review many years ago as a short article online. And I'm really super interested in going back and, and revisiting this. So here's the thumbnail sketch of this work. It's super interesting that when studying value and how your customers perceive the value, not just of your solution, but even the value of just broadly of a course of action. Typically, we think about it in B2B as either business value or personal value, what we call BV or PV. It's either good for the company or it's good for me. And when we say this with a lot of detail, a lot of methodology, what we found is actually there's there's not two dimensions of value, Ray, but there's actually three statistically distinct dimensions of value along which customers perceive a course of action or a solution. So there's what we called company value, professional value, and identity value. So company value is the degree to which I see the value of your solution, the value of a course of action accruing to my company. It's good for my company. It's going to help us sell more units. It's going to help us uh, with our bottom line or EBITDA or whatever it might be. It's going to help us be more productive. That's company value. Professional value is also, it has a business aspect to it, but it's but it's denominated at, in, in an individual level. So this is good for me in my job. So this will help me be more productive. It'll help me get more things done. And so uh, it's, but again, it's got that business aspect, but it's denominated as an individual. And then third, was this thing called, so we got company value, professional value. The third one is this thing called identity value. And identity value is not the value that I see accruing to the company or the value I see accruing to me personally in, in doing my job, but it's the value that I perceive in your solution or course of action that accrues to me and how I, in my self-perception. So does this solution, does this course of action make me feel more confident in my job? Does it help me get more recognition among my peers? Does it help me elevate my status at my company? So there's, it doesn't change what I do. It changes who I am or how I perceive myself. And 
And again, the reason why this is so, so interesting is two. The first reason is, is because we didn't just make this up. It wasn't just like, I think there's three, not two, right? It was literally, you could see it in the data. It was statistically derived because these things statistically would work differently from one another. And so, you know, in what's called a factor analysis, they would load in a factor in a different way, which is, that's fancy talk for it. They're different from one another. So the fact that we were able to derive these things to st uh, statistically was interesting because then you start running tests on them. And the, and the punchline of all this is, of those three dimensions of value, company, professional, and identity, only one of them, identity, was statistically related to your willingness to go fight on behalf of that solution or course of action among your colleagues. In other words, if you want to not just find a mobilizer, but actually create a mobilizer, you have to tap into not just the ROI of what's good for your company, the ROI, how this makes you more productive. You've got to tap into their self-perceptions and motivate them to see what's in it for them in terms of how they perceive themselves and how others perceive themselves and essentially their identity inside that company. There's a, more to come on that, but man, is I mean, talk about the very human level of B2B commerce. That's as deep as it gets as far as I'm concerned. This stuff's so cool. I can't believe we're already on our 30-minute window, and I feel like this could be my personal sales therapy session because one of the things I always told our sales teams, when you want to identify the person with political capital and the willingness to spend a little bit of that political capital on your solution. But I never got to... But why will they do that? That identity value, right? So is there any, boy, cliff notes, one or two things you can recommend to a sales professional? How do you determine if they have that identity value to do this? It, it, it is. It's not that you find it. You make it. In other words, so what this make does it. is, yeah, it, it is. You have to have, first of all, and this sounds so cliche. That's why I'm hesitating because I hate to say this out loud. But But in this case, it really matters is you have to have a deep sense of empathy. In other words, to tap into someone's self-perception, the first thing you have to know is how they perceive themselves, right? So are they appreciated? Are they underappreciated? Do they feel like they belong? Do they not belong? Do they feel, what are they ask, What are their aspirations? What Do they, you know, are they trying to get higher in the company? Do they, are they trying to get more credibility? And, and understanding what those things are. And then, by the way, this is what B2C or business to consumer marketing has done for, I don't know, ever, right? I mean, this is literally, so when when I build a brand, an aspirational brand like Apple, it's like, I just want to be associated with that brand because it makes me feel better, not about Apple, but it makes me feel better about me because I'm carrying an Apple product, right? There's an element of how to do this in B2B. And when we first started presenting this, sometimes, Ray, people would say, yeah, but Brent, I don't make a sexy consumer product. I sell industrial roofing materials. That literally happened. A CMO in Chicago looked at me and said, I sell industrial roofing materials. How am I supposed to tap into people's identity? And so we started exploring that a little bit. It's like, well, your industrial roofing materials are better for the environment, or maybe, or they make people safer, or they have fire retardant in them, which is going to allow people to go home to see their kids, right? There's all sorts of, you see what I mean? It's like, this isn't the ROI calculator of like the total return on investment. That's also important for, because once you motivate someone to go connect to other stakeholders, you got to give them something to talk about. So that's where the company professional value becomes the, the lingua franca, the common language of what that person who now motivated talks about. But to get them to go do that, to have that conversation, there's got to be a whiff of what's in it for me. Like, I want to be the person that makes the world a little bit better by doing this, or I want to be the person who gets a little bit more recognition let me give you one quick example, Ray, is, um, because I know we're at time, but Granger, the, the maintenance repair and operations company, many will know it's a US-based company. They sell bazillions of products. And for many years, Granger has been running a campaign, which may have run its course now, but I'm sure many have heard it called the one for the ones who get it done. And for the ones who get it done was this campaign about the plant manager 
who's essentially underappreciated, who keeps all the machines running, who keeps everything stocked and is essentially responsible for making sure that the wheels don't come off of the entire production facility and all falls apart. He's the unsung hero of the entire production world. And, and Granger said, hey, we see you. We acknowledge you. You are the one who gets it done and you get it done with us, with Granger. And the whole idea is to get this person to say, man, those guys at Granger, they get me. They so get me. We're like this. You and I, we are connected. And that's what you have to do, I think, in this identity value play is how do you get someone to say that person, Acme, they just get me. We, we, we see eye to eye. And, that's, and so that's a, that's a good example of B2B of what that looks like when it's done well. And it's really powerful stuff. And Brent, I put you on the spot at the beginning of the podcast with your hot take. Here's my hot take. I think all that capital we've seen over the last five to, you know, seven years in our industry has created the saturation of solutions. There's too many sales engagement platforms or conversational intelligence platforms, but the person who can align their solution to that emotional engagement of, you get me, those are the winners, not the best feature function. That's my hot take. What do you think? I think you're right. And that's that's why I'm at Ecosystems. We have a platform that can take the place of a number of point solutions. And we are very working very hard to, to run this play, which is how does this connect to people and their aspirations? So I, I'm walking the walk. I'm actually trying to do, Ray, what we're talking about here. And I think it's very powerful when you get it right. But I think it's identity. I, want, I would just be careful. It's not sufficient, but it's necessary. It's the thing that gets the flywheel of consensus creation rolling through mob- creating a mobilizer. You still then have to have the rational argument, the business value argument for why someone should make the purchase. And if you're not covering all three bases of value, that is company, professional, and identity value simultaneously, I think you're going to struggle. Well, we're going to have to wrap up, but I want to give our listening audience a chance to get to know Brent just a little bit better on three quick questions. First, is there a CEO or company that's a must follow today for a SaaS professional? There's one, at least in the SaaS world, I would keep your eye out for ServiceNow. What they're doing at ServiceNow is that that's an incredibly impressive company, an incredibly impressive CEO, as we all know, uh, at least the work they're doing with us. Every time I watch what they're doing with us in our platform, like my head explodes. It's so interesting. Uh, and so watch out for them. You know, this is an audio only podcast, but I'm holding up a book right now from Bill McDermott, the CEO of ServiceNow called yep. Winner's Dream. And it's a great read for everyone. Second yep. question. Our listeners are a lot of SaaS CEOs, CFOs, Mm -hmm. and revenue team leaders. Is there a tool, not your own, that every SaaS company should be using on their journey to success? Or it could be a category. You don't have to name a specific tool. Yeah, I don't know that I'd go tool. I I think, again, I think tool, see, that goes back to the first part of our conversation. A tool sitting on top of a bad understanding of how selling works just exacerbates a problem rather than overcomes it. So the tool itself is not the panacea, right? So I would go back to some of the work that I put in HBR that's just mind-bending, at least it's mind-bending to me, around rewriting sort of sales and marketing. I think that's we have to go all the way back to first principles, clean sheet the entire function of sales and the function of marketing and build it up around customer outcomes or buyer outcomes and buying jobs. So actually, if I may, it's not a piece of technology. It's a book by a guy named Bob Mesta, M-O-E-S-T-A. Bob Mesta is the worked with Clay Christensen on the jobs to be done. That was in Harvard Business Review. Done a lot of work with Bob. At CB, we did a lot of work with Bob and his work is amazing. So solving for customer buying jobs and back from that, that's the way you want to go. And when you do that, you're going to want to tear down the boundaries between sales and marketing and you should because it's it's Great. it's just actually our functional silos, I think, are our single biggest barrier to breakout growth going forward. Full stop. 
Okay, there's another podcast. Can't get there now, but I'd love to discuss that with you. But here's my last question. We have a lot of aspiring revenue leaders who listen to the podcast. They want to be a CRO of a SaaS company someday. For those early career people who have that aspirational goal, what's your advice to them? Get out of SaaS. If you truly want to be a CRO, if you want to be a world-class commercial leader, the very best of what's happening in B2B selling and marketing and buying, for that matter, isn't happening in SaaS. It's just not. It's happening in, quote unquote, dirty industries. It's happening in manufacturing. It's happening in capital equipment. It's happening in big Fortune 50 companies that have relatively commoditized products and solutions that have to go to market and win that battle every single day and high levels of complexity and big deals. If you want to truly step up to the the, the world of world-class B2B selling, get out of SaaS. How's wow. that for a hot take? I know. I, was say, I started asking you hot take and you ended it with an amazing <laughs> hot take. With that, hey, Brent, thank you so much for your time. It was really enlightening. Um, beyond reading some of your books to challenge yeah. yourself, to challenge your customer, how can people listen and learn from you? Where do they so I'm, you? I'm active on LinkedIn. It's probably the place to find me most. The, the Brent's breakdown videos, which we post on LinkedIn, just give me a follow and you'll find them there. You can also find them on YouTube. Uh, and then we post a lot of our content uh, at Ecosystems. We have a very large growing community of value professionals, people interested in value. We call it the customer value community at Ecosystems. And you can find us at ecosystems.us and, and find uh, more about the community, which is a very active community. And I'm, I participate pretty heavily in that, too. So we'd love to see you there. Okay. Well, thank you, Brent Adamson, for being a guest on the Metrics at Measure Up podcast. Really, thank you. Absolutely, Ray. It's good to talk to you. And to our listening audience, if you're enjoying the guests and the conversations and the quality of content that we're interacting on, it would mean the world to us to go ahead and subscribe to the Metrics Measure Up podcast on your favorite podcast app. Give us that five-star rating and provide us a review or recommendation how we can make the content even better. Thank you, everyone. And thank you, Brent. Thank you for listening to today's Metrics Measure Up podcast. If you would like to learn more about B2B SaaS metrics and benchmarks, please visit revopsquared.com.